Open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we continue through the Ten Commandments, we're at number eight today. We've been going one commandment per week, the the most famous of ethical rules, if you want to speak from an anthropological point of view, the the most famous uh, 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 law code in all of history, which, as we argued early on in this series, has become the most influential the, the, the three of the largest uh, world religions, if we want to speak that way, tie their ethics back to these Ten Commandments, however accurately they exegete them. The, the West as we know it, built on Judeo-Christian, which is, in other words, just the triune God, tritheism, uh, it's not tritheism, that's a heresy, don't kill me, triune theism from Scripture has built the common grace blessings that we've seen in the world. The, the Ten Commandments are influential and powerful, and yet it is not just the law that the Bible shows to us, it is more importantly the gospel of Jesus that the law leads us to. We're going to discover and, and remind ourselves of both in our time today. Can you please turn to Exodus chapter 20. I should obey my own self and get there. And we will be reading <clears throat> just, verse, uh, uh, just verse 15. Four words. I hope you've got it in you this morning. Take a deep breath. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not steal. May God bless his own word in our midst. Amen. The Lord God, as we look through the law that God gave, we remember every week, we remind ourselves, the law is good. The law is godly, the law is righteous, because it shows us something about the God that gave it. It's a bit of an image, it's a bit of a, a carving of the holiness of the God who is our creator and our savior. And, it, and for the Israelites, their redeemer out of slavery. So we look at this command, do not steal. And before we have to start asking, how do we obey this? How does this condemn us? We first need to remember the motivations. Why do we not steal? Well, because through this law, we see a God who is a generous, generous God. The obeying of laws is not a terminal purpose in and of themselves. We don't obey just to obey a command. We obey because we want to be like God. And therefore, when we say, do not steal, it's not enough for us to be motivated by, by a mere command, do not steal. Rather, the deeper, the deeper conviction is, as a child of God, made in his image at my creation, restored into his image in my salvation, I want to be like him. I want to look like him, like any child with a loving father, looks up to his dad, says, I want to be like him. I, I, I want to obey his rules because I want to be a man like him one day. So we also do to our God, the Father. We hear, do not steal, and it's incumbent on us to ask why. What, what is so godly about obeying this command? And it is this, that God is a generous, giving God. The, the moment that, that human beings were created by God, they were endowed with innumerable blessings that God didn't have to give them, but that he chose to give them. The, the, the moment that Adam took his first breath and woke up in the garden, he was surrounded by a beautiful Eden. He was surrounded with a perfect world, with oxygen to breathe, with stars to look at, without light pollution and smog yet. That would come later on. He had amazing animals to look at that didn't bite him, that didn't, flowers that didn't prick his hands, just a beautiful, perfect world. The Genesis 2 says that when God made male and female, he blessed them. He just blessed them. That's what God does. He's a blessing, generous, giving God. James verse, chapter 1 verse 17 says, 
every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is an unchanging God who generously gives. And and so you look at your life and you say, well, how much of this is because of my hard work? And how much of this is due to God's grace? How much is what other people have... Who do I thank? I I received my meal from my mother, but but did God not grow the food? Or did the farmer not grow the food? At at which point we don't have an either-or way of giving thanks in the Christian world. We know that the farmer sows. We know that the mother cooks. But all things come from God. We are thankful to each other, but, but, but even beyond one another, we realize that every gift, every single gift comes from God, who is a generous father. Acts 17, verse 25, Paul preaching to pagans. That's the, that's the, that's the, 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 the lineage and the tradition that Hope Reformed Baptist Church stands in, preaching the gospel to heathens. That's our job. He said, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is owed thanks from every single creature of and person in creation, whatever tribe, village, nation, or country, or religion they are a part of, because God gives them life and breath. And in case that doesn't encapsulate all of it, he says everything. Everything is from God. He's a generous God. And, and we see that, the, as of course, as, as Christians, we, we acknowledge that the God, God's redemptive history, his, his unfolding plan throughout all of redemption then lands on this, that he not only gave us life, he not only gave us the blessing of family and friends and food and, and all of the, and clothing, all the rest, but this, that God then to those who did not deserve it, in fact, who were ill-deserving, deserved the exact opposite, gave us his son. God is a generous God who has given to us, despite what we don't deserve, despite the hell we do deserve, the generous gift of eternal, unchanging, unshakable, incorruptible life and forgiveness in his son. Our God is a generous God and he commands us to do the same. Secondly, we realize as we look through this lens of do not steal and we look at God, we realize that God is a God who invented private property. God is a God who not just respects or acknowledges, but in fact invented private property rights. God's not a communist, we could say, and must say, that while he gives to all people, while all things come from God, he gives certain things to you that he didn't give to me. He gave certain things to me that he didn't give to you. And his command is not that everybody own each other's things, but that he, as he gives particularly to particular people, that we acknowledge that as his sovereign call and do not take from one another. In the command, do not steal, we see the, the foundation of the command to respect other people's ownership or the foundation for what in the West has become known as private property rights. Philosopher and sociologist and author Engels, who was a good mate of Karl Marx, the, 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 the inventors, if you want, of, of what we now know as communism, he said that private property rights was just a step in sociological human evolution and development as we went from savages and heathens and we developed a little bit more in, in what became more like societies, we invented things. 
We invented things to protect the hegemony, he says. Basically this, powerful men invented social constructs to protect the interests of powerful men. The, the worst of the evil powerful men inventing things to protect their own rights is, the, is the, the white man. The evil, patriarchal, Christian, European man. This is his view of, of uh, and how it is applied today. That, that society was developing and then men started inventing things like monogamy. I, I read scripture and I get to know people. I don't think dudes invented monogamy. That, that's my opinion, but okay, Engels. He says, they invented monogamy, one wife, because before that, we all shared wives, and we all shared children. That, 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 that was just, he, he universalized, I'm not going to get into sociology and history with you, but this is his view of history, that, that, that men invented monogamy, and they invented thereby the nuclear family. They created, that wasn't God's design, because God doesn't exist. That wasn't the natural design, because nature is just an evolving blob of goop. And chemicals. So, so man created nuclear family, created monogamy, and then to protect their inheritance going through the patriarchal line, they started saying, this belongs to me and doesn't belong to you. This includes my land and my property. And he's saying, it, is, it may have been beneficial in certain parts of history and sociological human evolution and development, but it's not necessarily good. And in fact, to go back to further progress, we need to undo some of these imagined constructs that people think God invented. We look at Scripture, not Engels, who is now kindling. We look at Scripture and say, God says, don't steal. You own things. They belong to you. I own things. You're not allowed them. And all of the scriptural commands to generosity, and this is where the, the hippie, either young, uh, uh, commune, camp, Acoustic guitar, beanie, bracelet-loving Christian, or on the other end, the left-leaning communistic Christian, they get confused and they say, but God commands generosity. In Acts 2, it says they all shared everything. God's commands to generosity do not overrule private property. They assume private property. It's not generosity for you to give me something that's mine. When you move over on the highway, because I'm indicating, and I have right-of-way, you're not being generous, all right? Mr. F-250 pickup truck that I wish I had, but I'm not intimidated by you. You, whoever you are, you pulled off suspiciously close to me at the church roundabout, so, so you might even be here. I want the Lord to do work on you. When you don't move over, or when you do move over, that's not you being generous. It's our road. I paid for it with my tax as much as you. However, if something belongs to you, that is the only time you can be generous with it. So that even in the early church, even in the Proverbs, in the Old Testament, when, when God commanded generosity, he's assuming you own something because he gave it to you. You have a right to keep it, but in your giving, you go above and beyond. He commands that heart. He does not command the universal ownership of all things. You have things that I do not. It was not conservatives. It was not the medieval Catholics, it was not Western Plato who designed or came up with private property rights. It's God's idea. What's yours is not ours. What's yours is not mine and yours. What's yours is yours by divine right. Therefore, our laws and our rights are sort of two sides of the same coin. 
This is like, uh, yeah, traditional Christian Western ethics. But don't think that just because it's that, it was invented by Christian Western white people. They got that from Scripture, and here's the eternal principle that is unchanging and binding on everybody and is pretty basic once we start getting the logic gears going, is that if God says one commandment of a, of a law, the flip side of that is a right that you have as a human. Example, commandment number six, do not kill because life is precious. You have a right to set to life. Whether you're a baby or you're an elderly or you're just my neighbor, If God commands me, do not kill, that reflects that behind that is a human right to life. No one can take it from you. So also, God says, do not steal what is not yours. The principle behind that is you genuinely own things. Therefore, the right that we we develop is personal property rights. Your land, your belongings, your money belong to you by right. And it is not godly to try and flatten out the, 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 the ownership of all people under the guise of false equity. So, so God is a generous, giving God, and he invented private property rights because he is generous to each of us, but not always in exactly the same way or with the same gifts. And then we come to this, to understand this and say, so that's the God that we worship and that we are commanded from. He gives, but he gives differently and he expects us and demands us to acknowledge his sovereignty in giving. And, and then we say, all right, well, now we're set up to obey this law. Let's start understanding it. How do we obey the commandment? Do not steal. Now, I'm not going to do a show of hands. But about a decade or so ago, there was a Barna Group study that came out, that the evangelical study group, that said that 86% of evangelical adults believed that they were 100% clear of ever breaking this law. Now, I'm glad you're, you're laughing with me, hopefully because you would never have answered the same way. I, I need to be convinced. It is therefore my job this morning. I've got 11 points. 11 ways we can and have and do break the, the, this commandment, and none of us are going to get out clean on this. We are thieves, every one of us. Firstly, it obviously prohibits robbery by force or by intimidation or by secrecy. The Bible prohibits theft. Exodus 22 verse 1 expands on this and says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, aha, I've never stolen that. Remember, category applications of God's law, it counts as cars, phones, laptops, the belongings. These were the expensive belongings and assets of people in that day. And we apply it to ourselves. If he steals an ox or a sheep and kills it, to use as food, or sells it for money, then he shall repay five ox for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. You know that in the New Testament, when, when uh, uh, the, the, the tax collector was saved, Zacchaeus, and he said, I'm going to pay back four times everything. That wasn't being brought up by his own generosity. He was obeying the law. If he didn't do that, Jesus probably would have prompted to do so. But, but don't we see when, when a soul is saved from wickedness, it starts to love God's law. Theft comes with hefty paybacks in the Old Testament as a, a deterrent for being a thief. Uh, it goes on to say, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing to his name, then he shall be sold for his theft. 
So if you're poor and you steal and you literally don't have the money to pay back fourfold, then you'll go into indentured servitude and you're spending the next six years paying off your debt. It goes on to say, if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, so he didn't sell it, he didn't kill it, he still got it, he's still on his getaway donkey. Whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he will pay double. So, so you're always paying at least double that. It's not enough to say, you've caught me, you've found me, I will repay the debt. Rather, now on top of the financial debt, there is a moral debt that I've now offended and harmed you and broken God's law and principle, dishonored you as an image of God bearer and stolen what was yours. I repay the money, which is not repayment, it's yours. You take it back, not generosity, and then I pay the fine of additional wronging, the moral debt. So in other words, in Israel, there's no way that you can commit theft and and ever run the risk of being caught without being worse than you started. It's just never going to be a a financially uh, advantageous enterprise because whenever you're caught, you will always be, be end up being worse in your debt and poverty than you ever started. Debt uh, 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 robbing is evil. The cost was higher than any benefit. God hates theft, whether it's the poor robbing the poor, uh, being robbed by the rich. God hates that. If it was the poor being robbed by other poor people, God hates that. If it's the rich being robbed by the rich, God still hates that. If it was the rich being robbed by the poor, who were being paid by the rich to do the robbing, God hates that. And if it was the rich being robbed by the poor, God hates that. God didn't give it to you. It doesn't belong to you. Theft is not allowed. It is a breaking of one of God's first ten commandments. We see this further applied, secondly, in man-stealing. Man-stealing. The taking of human beings and selling them into slavery. We see this in Exodus 21 verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in his possession shall be put to death. You steal a person, you degrade their life to the dust, God says, your life will be counted as dust. Your blood will go in the dust. You die. You be a Christian and in, in the new world and some of even the Puritans who own human beings, guess what? I love their books. I read their theologies. They should be dead. There's no excuse for this. Any ownership of human beings in slavery, stealing of people, which often included the local Christ, uh, people, the local villagers or tribesmen or people in our common world, they steal their neighbor, their fellow man, sell them to the highest bidder. I, I, I bring this up because you might read the Ten Commandments like an atheist friend of mine did and constantly say, we just know this was written by human beings living at the time. I mean, it's just, it just drips with the, with the morals of the day. There's nothing surprisingly divine about this Ten Commandments. You know what it doesn't even mention? Rape, kidnapping, slavery. It's a product of its own moral day. And my only response to that is, friend, you don't know how to interpret God's Bible. Here's the Ten Commandments, and then he exegetes his Ten Commandments over most of the rest of Exodus. You know what he mentions? Rape, you die. You know what he mentions as an application of stealing? Slavery and man-stealing. You die. God's already thousands of years ahead of you. Can we just get back to this? You're not smarter than God. Bend the knee. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. It's all here. So yes, man-stealing included. Thirdly, swindling. This is when we, we deceive people out of money. 
either through false merchandising. We're selling goods and we know them to be dodgy, but we know that we can mask that just long enough to sell them to somebody. Maybe selling a lemon of a car on Facebook Marketplace. Maybe, maybe I once had a Christian brother try and sell me his car. He walked into the room moments after his wife had just been telling me how horrible and expensive the car is, how much they wish that they could just get rid of it. They, they, they would throw it on the side of the road if they could, but that's illegal. It is such a lemon. He walks in, hears us talking about cars. He says, oh, do you want to buy mine? <laughs> he was my pastor at the time. <laughs> yeah. We told him what we, what we were talking about, and he quickly, uh, background, oh, just kidding. It's a lemon. Yeah. Woo, don't do that to each other. Let, 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 let us not dodge out one another. I'm only going to tell stories here that make me look like the victim. Never going to tell any of my, it's not confession time for me. Uh, uh, any, any charging above what we know something is worth. This doesn't mean that competitive pricing and, and bartering is sinful. This means that charging somebody for something we know is not worth it is, in fact, theft. Whether it be cars, pieces of art. I think, this, I think most of our postmodern art is a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. You flick something on a, on a piece of canvas, you sell it to... It's just a tax write-off. Surely, surely this is all just, just a, a smoke and mirrors to help rich people... Par I, this is me ranting now. But how that is then sold for $1.2 million as a reflection of modern man's internal thoughts about the... No, no, that's theft right there. And some idiot paid it. Or accounting fraud. When we're changing the books so that we can uh, pass over dishonest exchange, uh, uh, transactions that we've made. Making up buyers, this is especially for business owners, small business owners. Making up buyers and making up charges to put onto the books to allow for extra cash flow. Burning the company and then transfer it to a new name so that you keep all of the assets and lose all of the debts. It's a complete dishonesty and a, and a theft of all the people who have invested or purchased with some kind of expectation, a reasonable expectation, a promised expectation of return, and it's then used and flipped into a person's benefit. These are all stealing from those who gave their money as an investment for some kind of payoff. One thing has been promised and nothing was delivered. <clears throat> or dishonest transactions. This would include... Uh, uh, um, uh, oh, sorry, still on swindling. Uh, this would include scams. How many of you have received the phone call from the Nigerian prince who has a surprisingly Eastern accent and, and, and tells you that if you just help him, uh, his father was deposed and it's now his job to take back the kingdom and if you can just give him a small loan through Western Union, he will be able to pay you back with Nigerian gold. Once, Am I the only one who entertains these phone calls? Or, or are you just now realizing that it was a scam and that there is no $1,000 coming back to you in, in pure gold? No. Uh, uh, scamming is obviously thieving, con man tricks, where investors make things up and then take investments and run off with the cash. Can I tell you, this is literally how Mormonism started. Joseph Smith was a con man. He, he, he had uh, found in northeastern USA, he found the old ancient buried golden tablets written by a prophet of bygone eras and, and he found with them giant golden spectacles that when he looked through he could read the old Egyptian and then translate it and he had these poor farmers and people around him who were hearing that God has spoken to Joseph and he's going to use Joseph to reestablish the true church and Joseph goes behind a 
curtain and reads from the golden tablets that no one else is allowed to see. This had to click for some people at some point, and it did. And, and, and so one guy, this poor farmer, who gave much of his life savings towards the reestablishing of the true church, took the translations to a professor translator in New England and said, brother, can you translate this? Can you just affirm that this is true hieroglyphal reformed Egyptian, that God is... And, and the guy's looking, and before he even looks at the documents, he says... You know you're being taken for a ride, right? This is an absolute... I don't know who this Joseph Smith fella is. It's probably a false ID. He's swindling you. Have you given any money to this? Uh, well, yes, I have. The Lord is doing a great work. He goes, you need to run. I will literally go with you to the police right now and we'll go and arrest him. Had he done that? No, Mormonism. Con man started religion equals millions in hell. He ends up lying, going back and, and publishing something saying, the professor translated it and said it's really true. God, it, it was a total lie. Con man always has large effects down the, down the track. Or, or when you are, are buying and selling fake goods. I've known Christians to do this. It's a great way to make money. You take a picture of something with an odd perspective. People think that, this is funny, one Christmas, my mom, <laughs> shouldn't say a name, a mother of mine, you don't know her. Got this $60 giant Lego car for all the kids to play with. And it came in this box that could fit in the palm of your hands. <laughs> Turns out it was a normal Lego car made of five Lego blocks. And she bought it for $60. I have a, a brother who just recently purchased a radial engine. He's, he's, a, he's a mechanic kind of thing with, with airplanes. And he purchased something off eBay. He said it was down from $500 to $50. As if it's always the red flag. And what he got in the mail was a small ring with a fake emerald in it. What a petty... Why did they... I, I told him this. Why did they send you that? Why don't they just take your money? Why do they have to be so insulting as to send you a little lollipop ring? Isn't that just more, that's just adding insult to injury, but that is a, a form of stealing. And it's not good income. Christians, stay away from all kinds of fraudulent, scamming, dishonest ways of making money. Often, if we find, and, and we get desperate, and we want to start doing so, if you find that it is far too good to be true, just how much people are paying, or, or it probably is, you're probably being dishonest. Money usually comes as a mode of hard work, not on high-risk gambling. Also a form of stealing. God has woven into the, into the world, work equals income. Inheritance from family equals blessings. Going and, and, and risking your family's income, which you owe to them as a father and a husband. Usually it's the guys on this. Uh, risking your family's income, which God gave them through you, just because it's sitting in a bank account with your name on it, from a payslip with your name on it, doesn't mean you're free to risk it in gambling. Stealing. And the money you do make off gambling, almost always an act of stealing anyway. The poor are brought in on false promises that they can make big. They all go home poorer. Every now and then you make money. You're making poor people's desperately given money into your account. Never wise, never godly. Dishonest transactions. Charging to the work card personal expenses. I technically would have been dehydrated at work had I not purchased the beer. It is technically, therefore, an, an asset to the business that I buy this beer. 
And there she goes at BWS, using the work card for fuels, fuel expenses that are not honestly for work, if we have a work card, charging twice to the same billable hours. I was talking to a Christian business guy one time. We met at 2 p.m. for a coffee, and he's just telling me, busy day, big day, two eight-hour jobs today, blah, 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 big money, blah, blah. I just go, I stop him and go, I'm impressed with your work ethic. At what point did you start this morning? He goes, oh, 8.30. My maths is off. You said two eight-hour jobs? He goes, yeah, 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 I did, it. I did one of them in three hours and one of them, the other one in four hours. But they were, yeah, big jobs. Like, sell- I know this is quite uh, 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 abstract here, my friend. You're selling hours that don't exist. You can up your hourly rate if you want. You can't bill people for the same hour. That doesn't exist. You're charging somebody for, for a made-up hour. You worked eight hours, you get paid for eight hours. You can up, increase your hourly rate, but my guess is you won't get jobs if you do that. So you invoice them as an eight-hour job because that's what it takes some guys. To, that, that's stealing. Be honest on invoices. Be honest on, at work. Tradesmen and businesses might give a very small quote and then get the car in, get the whatever it may be in, uh, get into the electrics and then start expanding the work or extending the kind of things that need doing unnecessarily to inflate the invoice. Dishonesty at the checkout. This is for the mums. When you buy the walnuts and you plug it in as peanuts or something, I don't know the, the comparable quotes and prices of nuts these days, but, but, but you weigh it in at a, at a slightly lesser thing. There's an old famous painting, one of the Rockwell paintings, and, and there's this butcher and uh, a mother who are, who are buying by opposite sides of the counter and both with a cheesy grin on their face. The butcher has his thumb on the scales pushing it down so that he can charge more, and the mother has her finger underneath the scales pushing it up, both of them thinking they're cheating each other out. And in, in, in the days of when, when scales were not so digital, they used to, uh, we see this commanded in the, in the prophets, rebuked in the Old Testament, common in the Old World, even brought up in the Reformed Confessions. We're stealing when we shave off measures or add weights to the scales so that we can charge greater amounts and get a better payoff. Unjust and dis- unequal weights and measures is what the Old Testament calls it. These sorts of things are forms of stealing. Or at work, employees, you are paid. So let's say an eight-hour day, you're paid eight hours. What their job is doing is giving you money that according to the contract, they're purchasing eight hours from you. Eight hours plus maybe half hour work break and you get paid for your morning tea often. Hallelujah. That's a blessing. And here they are. They've purchased your hours. They have not purchased the equivalent average of other people's work ethic. They've purchased your best hours. The best effort that you can give working with all of your might as an as a able-bodied person with intellect, that's what they purchased. When you could do more, could do harder and slump, and work just enough to stay at par, or sit there scrolling on social media, or look for other jobs on seek.com, or, 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 you, or play Candy Crush at the office desk. If you use company purchased hours to do your own pleasure or leisure, you are stealing from your employer, and you must hereby pay back four times. I don't know. I don't know how it'll work, but we definitely need to repent. Uh, that Paul applies stealing to work. Ephesians chapter 4, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor. Here's the opposite. Here's the positive opposite. Don't let the thief steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with someone in need. That's the opposite of the life of thievery. Or he says this in 2 Thessalonians, 
When we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. How does that go over in an entitled generation? Not if he can't work because he's injured. Not if he can't work because, because the providence and recession have come down upon him. But if he's not willing, if he's not getting out of bed because the government gives handouts. Mum, did you know the government pays me to not have a job? That's not how this works, son. <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to work, I should say. It is how it doesn't work in our, in our country, but it's not supposed to work along those lines. You're paid as an as, as, as a, as a, uh, allowance to help you get by on minimum wage until you can find a job. That's how it's supposed to work. Are we at all confused that people don't prioritize work when they're literally paid to not work? We get more of what we incentivize. We get more of what we promote, and handouts are a form of promotion. But Christians can help solve this. We can help solve an enormous deal when we, if able to work, do so. And this is what Paul commands to the church. If you've got guys in your church, if you've got people in your church who are choosing not to work and taking church deacon mercy ministry handouts, don't feed them. When they stop eating, they will probably miraculously find the motivation to get to work. That's what Paul says. So work ethic is a way that we can uh, 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 obey this. Or as employers, not paying your staff what you've promised. Sometimes this is intentional, that you, you, you get a bunch of subbies in and then skip town quickly with your trailer of, uh, of, of, of tools and then leave everybody else without payment. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's difficulty hits the business and there is not the appropriate godly priority to honor other people who have worked for you. James 5 speaks of this, that the, the laborer cries out for his wages. You might not hear, but God does. Employers who agree upon a price, therefore, with their employees, deserve the best hours of their work. It is a dishonor to not do so. It is time theft. Or we can think of the government, number seven. Fraudulent, as we, we mentioned just earlier, I sort of mingled them together. The fraudulent accepting of handouts that you do not really, at least biblically, qualify for. I've known people to lie on their, on their family statements so that it looks like there's two single parents to the government. They're getting single parent payouts. They've hidden the fact that they're married. They, they don't deserve those payouts. I've known people to, 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 to hide a lot of uh, uh, cash income in order to lessen the tax in dishonest ways for goods and services done so as to, 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 to lessen uh, taxable thresholds. These are ways that we are cheating the system and therefore stealing, lying about dependents, stealing from, our, from, from taxpayers. My concern here is not that we're stealing from the government. They're perfectly fine with stealing. Let's just say that. They're okay with thieving. The problem is that you're stealing. We're stealing. When we take dishonest handouts, dishonest government grants that we, we don't fill in uh, the, the applications for honestly, and our, our company gets a nice little bonus. We're not technically a, a, a charity organization, but the parent company is, and we've done some fix-ups on the paperwork. Dishonest. What we're doing there is we're not stealing from the government. We're stealing from each other. We're stealing from our parents who paid the tax. We're stealing from our grandchildren who will have to pay the tax. We're stealing from our neighbors and from one another, toppling the balance of our economical system <clears throat> or in our politics. This is a bit broader. Number eight, we can break the eighth commandment 
by preferring politicians. Now, I don't tell people how to vote, not my job as a pastor, but, I'll, but I do believe that politics are just a society-wide manifestation of the values of a community. And therefore, to speak to the values and ethics and morals of a community, we want to see that though it's not immediately politically solvable, this will have implications to our politics. And some Christians, often it's the young or the disenfranchised or those who don't have a very good worldview or who are just covetous, they say, I'm going to vote for the party that promises the most amount of handouts for my people group or my intersectional little identity politics uh, collection. I'm gonna, they said that if they get in, they'll triple the tax on the millionaires and give it out to people under 30 unemployed. That's me. He's got my vote. We call it, though, some kind of tax. God calls it theft. Yeah, it's stealing. We, it's tax, Lord. He, he said he's going to take from them and give to me, and he's the government. He can do that. No, that's stealing. That's a really clever, tricky, beneficial form of stealing. We, we cannot be motivated for sociological, economical, political structures or parties whose promise is giving you what belongs to somebody else. Not all forms of tax will be a form of theft, but many can be. And I, therefore, am saying just that, that our motivation towards parties or loyalties should not be, must not be, whoever gives me the most of other people's stuff. You got the mafia for that if you, if you want to make that a lifestyle. That, that's illegal. That's ungodly. That is not biblical. Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a, a prime minister of the Netherlands in the 1880s, he, he spoke, he was, he, was, he was jealous to stabilize the economy of the nation so that the poor and those willing to work but put out of work by corporate greed would not go hungry. And he said, handouts don't solve it. That feeds the people who don't even have the shame to not take handouts. That's solving the problem way too late. Let's give people work. And as he was pushing this way, some people said, that's socialism. That's communism. That, that, that's what that is. And he said, it was written of him, the pastor who once preached on the commandment, thou shalt not steal could never condone a nationalization of private property or an egalitarian redistribution of wealth. In other words, the commandment, do not steal, was literally his motivation as a Christian to never lobby for or receive government handouts that are simply being taken from richer people. That's not how Christians should think. Moving on, number nine, taking advantage of those who are without any other option. This was condemned in the Old Testament. The prophets railed against this. Your brother is in need. He's unemployed. He's in poverty. He's starving. And you say, brother, I'll give you the funds you need at a very high interest rate. You have no other option than to do this, and it becomes a form of debt slavery. The, 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 the Jews would charge their brothers and sisters high interest rates so that in their gener they're making money off generosity. That's not how it's supposed to work. Or I, I've known Christians who, in a horrible situation, either they're working for a rich person or they've been tricked in business and the other person literally says to them, a lawyer is going to cost more than the money I'm taking from you. I know you can't afford it. Leave me alone. I've got more corporate money for lawyers than you do. You can't win this. You lose no matter what. It's a throwing around of weight. It's a form of stealing. Or 10, refusing to give to God's mission. 
This is a way that we can steal from God. When in the Old Testament they were to tithe, that was give the first fruits and give the the top 10% of their income, God was not saying, I earn one, you earn nine. He's saying, I own it all, recognize that by giving me the first bit. It's a dedication of all the wealth to God by giving him the first, not simply that God owns one. God owns it all. He lets them keep nine parts. That's pretty generous. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have tithings, but we do have contributions. Listen to Malachi 3, verse 8 in the Old Testament. God says through Malachi, will man rob God? That sounds impossible. We can't do that. We can't get up into heaven, take out of his store, uh, stores and threshold. God says, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? I tell you, in your tithes and your contributions. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have tithes. We don't have the, the legal requirement from God for first 10% of net income, etc. We, we don't have that, but we do have contributions. We are commanded uh, to devote all of our money to the Lord, and part of that will include giving of an actual concrete portion of it to the work of God for both mercy, for mission, and ministers. Mercy, mission, ministers. Mercy, helping the needy. Mission, getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Ministers, paying for those who preach to us the word of God. That's what our money is used for in the New Testament. When, when, we, are, uh, when we are able to give and we don't give, we're robbing God. Some of us in, are in abject poverty, are, are literally paying off enormous amounts of debt. Some of us have just lost, lost a, a husband and we cannot, things, things are different. God isn't being legalistic and saying each week that goes by that you don't give an equal amount of this percentage, then you will be marked as sin. Rather, God says to us in the New Covenant, give generously, give as you are able, according to what God gives to you. So it's in proportion. So, so it doesn't matter if you can justify it to yourself. I'm in a season of self-giving. It doesn't matter if you can convince and justify it to your pastor. Well, well, pastor, I know you mentioned tithing. Can I just explain my situation to you? I'm sure that you can see on my budget. This is a tight squeeze. No matter. I could say, absolutely, brother, you're, 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 you're absolved. And God still holds you guilty. What matters is when we go before the Lord with our budget, with our hearts, with our, our idol of money in our hands, we put it before God and say, please, Lord, are you okay with me not giving now? Very rarely, he will give us the clean conscience then. If we're able to give and we do not, we are robbing God in Malachi's word. Now, maybe for the first time you're hearing this and, and you say, wow, I didn't know God, God took our money. I'm a new Christian. I used to be Mormon. They love taking money. I used to be Catholic. I had to buy, for my, buy my salvation. Or I, I used to work for a greedy employer. This sounds like divine tax. What's going on? What it is is that God chooses to involve us in his mission. And there really is no divinely ordained way to fund the gospel going to the ends of the earth other than the local congregation funding what they can together in their, in their offerings and contributions to the church. Maybe for some of you, this is a reminder. You very conveniently let this part of your budget and obedience slide. It's a really awkward conversation. I hope no pastor or Christian will bring it up with me. And we keep on conveniently overlooking it each time we redo our family budget. For you, it's a reminder to return and review what you can give to God. For others, it is a rebuke. You have been putting it off. You had an excuse you thought when you were dirt poor and you needed to pay your mother's medical expenses. But now the Lord has blessed you and you have an income and you have all sorts of ways of giving and you still have excuses. 
Some of us are robbing God and there is eternal good not being done because we have missed the point. We're keeping all of it for us when it in fact all belongs to God. Where our treasure is, our heart is also. This is what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, wherever your money, whatever your largest investment is, this is Jesus speaking to human nature. It might be your house, a business, your child's education. Whatever on your budget line occupies the greatest worth is what you will have an unchangeable tendency as a human to value most. That's not an if maybe. That's not a but if you're holy, it won't be. That's how it is. Some of us have our heart in things that are neutral. Some of us have our heart in things that are ungodly. Some of us have our heart in things that are godly. And and one of the ways that I advise is this. If you find that your treasure is not in the kingdom, I'm telling you, on Jesus' words, your heart is not in the kingdom. So what you do is, instead of waiting for your heart to drift to the kingdom, leaving your treasures behind, Jesus says the opposite way. Pick up your treasure like somebody in the Berlin wall, behind the Berlin Wall, zip tie it up in a cloth, hurl it into the kingdom, and then you'll feel your heart follow. That's how it works. You throw it into the water and you will follow eventually. Don't wait for your heart to get into the kingdom, but start sacrificially, intentionally, wisely putting money into the kingdom and you will find, I care a lot more about the mission now. 10,000 of my dollars are over in that nation. I knew a Christian who, who his wife sold a very precious piece of jewelry to purchase Bibles for a people group that had been converted 50 years ago, and there wasn't a Bible in their village. And then 500 Bibles, that their jewelry was converted into, I, I know this because I had to help them talk to the pastor over there, their jewelry got converted into 500 Bibles in homes. There's grandmas reading the Bible now to children who for 50 years couldn't do that because they gave up a piece of jewelry. Investing in the kingdom makes this person really care about the kingdom because that's where their goods and treasures are. And, and it's a way of taking money and converting it, not into Bitcoin, into eternal money and rewards when you throw it into the kingdom. The Lord, the Lord blesses this. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's how we do it. We invest in the kingdom. And the under-ruling under thing of all of this, that the commandment is, is rebuking is greed. Don't be greedy. I was, I was reading uh, uh, this week up on the global financial, financial crisis. Some of us are too young to know it, but we lived through COVID. Some of us are old enough to remember it. Some of us are old enough to forget it and everything else before five minutes ago. I don't know where you are, but the global financial crisis was otherwise called the Great Recession. And it was when this, the, the real estate, this is going to be so boring for some of you. Let me make it fun. Uh, <laughs> I can't. Uh, there was in America. There was the real estate uh, uh, industry had just been built on these flimsy lies of investments. People were buying houses they couldn't afford because the bank was very happy to give out lots of loans at high interest rates because the lenders and the other people were punching up the interest rates, inflating the values of the homes. The real estate agents were making a lot on commission. The government was loving it because their economy was thriving and it's what they called a bubble. And eventually the bubble popped, the economy crumbled and the globe felt it. 8.8 million people put out of jobs in America alone in the great financial, global financial crisis. And there's so many people, it's funny, they look at it and they go, these greedy corporate liars. Guess what? 
There was millions of greedy corporate liars that affected people and even got people killed by the suicidal stress or people who couldn't feed their families. Yeah, they're to blame. You know who else is to blame? The middleman, the middle class guy who just got a job in real estate because he couldn't get a job in anything else and started making huge commissions. You know who else is to blame? All of the lower income and the poorer buyers, it was found that over 70% of individuals had lied on their mortgage application to get the mortgage. The problem was us. In, this, in our country today, there's, there's some uh, ridiculous, uh, some, I, I can't remember that, hundreds of millions of dollars of credit card debt in Australia alone. We just live on greed. And it creates, a, in not just individual, not just family, not just church, but global, economic, national levels, it creates instability and we're all to blame. The greed comes from the human heart and, and, and uh, radiates outwards with terrible, terrible consequences. Now, Barna said 86% of evangelicals said that they, were, that they believed they were free. And he hands up, who thinks you are totally free from ever breaking this commandment? I've got deacons at the ready. I want to hear how you live your life. You are the chosen one. No, none of us. Exactly. We are all condemned under this. Do not be greedy. Do not rob God. Do not be dishonest in financial matters. Do not steal. Do not be selfish. All of us condemned. Now, now this is where the, the law gives so much wisdom, gives so much advice. But if you come into church today hoping that the best you can hear is good advice, you come to the wrong place. The Bible does give good advice. It's called the law, the best way to live. But the Bible does not just give good advice because on the other end of the good advice, the law, is the punishment for failing it. God is not just an entrepreneur. He does not just come in this morning with three points, opportunity, power, and access. Huh? <laughs> Some of you are listening. He, he doesn't come in. That's not the sermon. He doesn't come in with a... He doesn't come in with the, with the, here's how to make the best money. Here's how to be the best neighbor. He's a God who says, be like me, perfect, or die in hell. That's the holy God that we meet in Exodus chapter 20. He says, be perfect, be perfectly generous like me, or die and go to hell. That's the only option you're left after reading the Ten Commandments. Go directly to hell. And then God enters human history according to the promises of the Old Testament in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And he comes and the death that we deserved, he took onto himself. And the debt that we owed God, he put into his own account. He put his, his accounts before the Father and said, I'll pay every, every penny, every, every moral debt to God. Every, every debt of sin and holiness to God, every debt of, of stealing God's glory, every debt humanity had needed to pay, all those that the Father would save required their thievery, your thievery, my thievery, to be forgiven, and Jesus willingly put forward his life, carried our sin on his shoulders, up the hill, on the cross, and paid the penalty for debtors, for thieves. And Luke tells us, that he hung there on the cross between two criminals who were thieves. This is a good news for thieves today, for every single one of us. Jesus has told to us in Matthew 27 that he hung between thieves. Luke tells us that he was hanging there between criminals. Jesus, in his death, was fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 12. The perfect one would come. 
and he would be counted as a transgressor. He would be counted as a criminal. One of the thieves spoke to Jesus. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us while you're at it. Still trying to swindle his way out of the cross. You got this magic stuff. Tag me in too. We'll share the profits later. But the other criminal rebuked him, speaking over Jesus to the other man. He says, do you not fear God? Moments from death. Have you not learned your lesson? The law had not had the effect on this man that it had on the second criminal. Death. The law, punishment, had had the effect on his conscience. He says, do you not fear God? We are here this day suffering the same sentence of condemnation and justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This is the first sign of of conviction of sin. God's law is good and I fail it. I deserve to die. That's what the Spirit does through the law in our hearts. And then hear how he brings forth gospel hope. And he said... Though this man in between us has done nothing wrong. Acknowledge that Jesus is the perfect one. Never thieved, never swindled, never lied. The perfect one. He is perfect. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. This is the promise of Jesus to thieves and sinners. You must recognize you deserve hell. You must recognize Jesus is the only perfect one. And then seeing him there on the cross, you must recognize that he took your punishment. And the moment you believe, you pass into eternal life and you will be going to heaven. The moment you trust in Jesus to be the creditor of your account, to pay debts and give you eternal life by his death alone, you will receive eternal life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe and be saved, every one of you. Let's pray. Father God, we honor you. You are a a giving, generous Father. We honor you because we have received much more than we have ever given thanks for. We thank you for all of your blessings, for every gift flows down from you, and you deserve eternal glory. You deserve eternal praise, and you will get it at the end of time. Father God, we celebrate that, and we thank you that we can give you glory, not by being those cast into the eternal fire to pay off our debts to you, but rather being those who have been given freely the benefits and riches of Jesus Christ, and therefore being able to praise you in heaven forever. We thank you that you have given to us not merely the option of death to pay off our debts, but rather life received through faith. We thank you not only for your law, which is good and righteous and holy, which condemns us. We thank you also for the gospel, which is gracious and merciful and full of forgiveness, which saves us and ushers us into your kingdom. Father God, I pray that you save those who do not believe in in our midst. I pray that you bless us who are seeking to obey. I pray that you honor yourself in our midst this morning. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.